You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Stephen Asma, who is a professor of philosophy at Columbia College in Chicago, and he's also the head of their Center for Mind, Science, and Culture. He is also the author of a whole bunch of books, I think seven books by now, of which I have, I think I have five here. Most recently co-authored this book called The Emotional Mind, which is really a, gosh, it's a comprehensive survey of kind of a new way of thinking about mind and the emotions, building on, I guess, your mentor, Janskip Penskip, Jan Penskip's work, Ponskip. Jak Penskip. Yeah, yeah. I actually have a couple of his books. He's no longer with us. And also books, Why We Need Religion, Against Fairness. Okay, that's going to be one that's, I think, provocative. The Evolution of Imagination on Monsters and a couple others. He's also a blues musician and a visual artist and also an expert on Buddhism and spent a lot of time in China, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and other countries. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you also buying all the books, Gregory. That's kind of remarkable. I could have sent you some of them, but thank you. Hey, I got to give you the few nickels that come (laughs) from your book sale. But Stephen, you're really embarking on a very interesting project, and I don't know even if there is a name for what it is that you're doing. I I came up with this idea of somewhere affective neurophilosophy, maybe, because it sits at the intersection of philosophy, psychology, religion, study of the emotions. You're discussing stories and storytelling. There's so many different disciplines that converge on what it is that you're doing, but I think you're really trying to understand humans and you're trying to understand them in a way that is, I guess, richer and more comprehensive than the paradigm that we see in, I guess, contemporary philosophy, contemporary psychology, contemporary decision theory. And there's sort of a, I guess, a positive and a normative dimension to this because the contemporary decision theorists, they emphasize this division between kind of system one and system two thinking. And it seems that all of the problems <laughs> can be attributed to kind of system one. And philosophers have traditionally devalued the role of emotions and scientists have sort of devalued the role of religion. And so in some sense, what you're doing is you're standing up for emotion, you're standing up for hot reasoning, you're standing up for religions and affect. And that's a pretty big agenda. It's very ambitious. So tell me a bit about how did you come to see the importance of these different levels of cognition? And how did you come to see the oversight that prevails in so many of the disciplines that you touch on? Yeah. I mean, it's the way you framed it is really nice. I think that's about right. And I suppose it started because my PhD is in philosophy. And when I was being trained in philosophy, my orientation was towards philosophy of science. And at that time, the only people doing philosophy of science were people doing uh, philosophy of physics. And slowly, what started to emerge was interest in biology. And I always had a longstanding interest in biology. So my actual degree was in the philosophy of biology. 
And what I discovered in doing that degree was that philosophers are, you know, your show's unsiloed. Philosophers are in a silo. They're an extremely insular group. Not all of them, but as a field, it's kind of remarkable how isolated they are on a handful of perennial questions. And I found that the philosophers I would talk to didn't know much biology and discounted its importance and didn't think it was very interesting. And then I would talk to biologists and they were sort of focused on micro questions. I mean, literally micro questions. And a lot of them didn't even seem to know basic stuff about evolution theory, which seemed criminal to me since it's the foundation of modern biology. And so it seemed like we were sort of talking at cross purposes. And in the humanities, and I think you're right, even in the social sciences now with decision theory, there's an emphasis on this, what I would call, I'll follow your metaphor, which is sort of a top layer of this cake or geological strata or, or whatever. And so they're looking at what's the decision-making brain doing or mind. And that's a very linguistic mind and it's very heavily enculturated and they're ignoring everything down below that level of mind. And then the biologists are sort of focusing on these sort of instinctual springs of action that we share with other mammals. And there's no meeting in the middle. Like they're literally talking different languages. And now because of the culture wars that we're in now, they're actually increasingly hostile towards each other. And so my whole project has been to try to weave together the different layers and show that there are causal influences from the emotions below, from the body to how we think and our language and our storytelling, just as there are also top-down influences on how we structure the emotions. And that's what many, in many ways, religion and other cultural um, sort of techniques and technologies are trying to do is sort of manage the physiology of the body. So yeah, that's maybe that's a good place to start. That's sort of where I'm trying to balance or find that middle connection. So I think you introduced this concept of the kind of tripartite mind to some degree. I, mean, I don't know whether mind is the right term, but tripartite cognitive system. And you also even use this term, the archaeology of consciousness, right? Presumably because the, the different layers that you're describing were kind of, they started with the subcortical brain is something which goes way, way back. And then you have sort of the limbic system, and then you have the, the neocortex. We're not just sort of living on the surface, but it seems like, I guess, artificial intelligence has I don't know whether it's influenced or I don't know if it's a cause or a consequence of way of looking at the mind as sort of a computational system. Of course, it makes sense to emphasize that aspect of the mind because we're seeing such rapid developments in artificial intelligence. But is there a reason why we've emphasized that aspect of the mind exclusively besides the fact that it's so important to artificial intelligence? I think it is a little bit like the way in which behaviorism came to dominate psychology, in part because you could just observe the behavior better than you could postulate inner workings of a subjective consciousness. So in a sense, the the technique or the technology tilted us towards, you know, or the ease of observation tilted us towards behaviorism. I think in contemporary AI, 
the computer model models are tilting us towards a certain kind of cognition, which is this, I would consider it to be a very rarefied, unique kind of a calculation that not only are human beings doing this primarily as opposed to the other animals, but I would argue that most human beings are only rarely engaging in this kind of computational consciousness of sort of chess playing mind. But the reason why we look at it this way is because these computational, well, computers were based on the sentential logic that was devised by people like Bertrand Russell and the people coming out of the, the Vienna circle who thought you could take propositions and you could basically translate those propositions into logical functors like and, or, and then you have variables. And that lent itself beautifully to the, the early computational languages. So all of, you know, like a Google search is basically like a Boolean algebra problem that's done very, very fast. So there, that's why I think we went in this direction. But that I think has, has caused us to go down the primrose path to looking at it only a kind of mind that solves problems in this symbolic way, using propositional language. And it forgets about the rest of the mind, like you were saying, if we think about the mind archaeologically, that sort of calculator mind isn't even on the scene. In terms of evolution, it wouldn't have emerged until around the time of language, which is arguably could be a million years old, could only be like 100,000 years old. We don't exactly know when language emerged. Think about how short a, or what a narrow sort of strata that is compared to the way in which animals solve problems and the way in which animals are smart. And as mammals, we have uh, operating systems that are below, like in the limbic system, in the subcortical regions, that are designed to solve problems of survival and resource management that are not these calculation propositional systems. And I was laughing, this guy recently was a Google employee. I know you know this story. And he said he thought one of these chatbots had become sentient or conscious. And then I think Google let him go or <laughs> something. But what cracks me up about that is that our marker of sentience is actually how well you use language, which I think is a ridiculous marker of what what a mind is and what sentience is. So I have been influenced by people like Yak Pangsep and Antonio Damasio and people who look at the emotional brain, which is much older, much and a much bigger part of our consciousness. But let's suppose that we were to acknowledge that this is an inadequate description of how people think. It's an inadequate description of, it's inadequate to explain how people behave. Wouldn't people still say, well, yes, but normatively, right, we should lean more heavily on our rational capacities. In fact, that neocortex is what makes us human. And after all, we're interested in being human. We don't want to be worms. We don't want to be primates and so forth. So why can't we normatively, whenever there is a choice between using these higher cognitive capacities and relying on sort of a lower or more primitive cognitive capacity, emphasize the former? It's a good question. And I think I don't want to suggest that we should never turn to reason. I mean, we have it as a great power and it has created amazing things. And so in cases like the law, it does seem to me fairly obvious that one wants to use something like a sort of ideal of disembodied rationality for normative fairness. And we have a whole tradition about this and it seems to work very well. The argument in many, many of my own sort of books and projects is that calculus doesn't work well for large parts of the human experience. For example, what is, you know, 
American democracy is sort of built on notions of that come out of the liberal tradition like John Stuart Mill and Bentham and the idea of a kind of utilitarian logic where you're trying to maximize the greatest good for the greatest number. That's a rational calculus. I mean, it, it's a, called a calculus of hedons, a hedonic calculus. And that works for certain kinds of social problems. When you have huge societies of strangers, that's a great system. The problem is if you try to plug in your actual values and your loyalties and allegiances to this system, it doesn't work very well. And you end up with some strange results, like most of us are very dedicated to our loved ones, our family first. So we have high levels of loyalty to family members, kith and kin. And if you say to me, well, as some utilitarians did, you know, if you're trying to maximize the greatest good for a number, for the greatest number, then you may have to actually hurt a family member in order for larger numbers of people to actually benefit. There's a fairly interesting utilitarian thought experiment by, I think it's Sedgwick, who says, you know, you go into this burning building, you, you can only save one person. And you look and you see the example he gave was this very famous and powerful politician who's going to do a lot of good for the society. So maybe you put your favorite politician in the corner and then you look over and you see the chambermaid. And uh, he says, well, you, I think uh, that, one, that one's older than that, right? That goes back to some bishop, right? That was in the burning building. Yeah, it's it. the one I'm thinking of is from the 1700s, but maybe there's one even earlier than that that I don't know. But in it, the choice is like the chambermaid versus this person. And the utilitarian calculus is, yeah, go with the great politician rather than the chambermaid. But then if I, if you look closer and you see, oh, wait, the chambermaid is my mother. Now, all of a sudden, the calculus, to my mind, the calculus is, is over. <laughs> it's just done. Like you just save your mother. <laughs> we don't have a way in ethics and in the normative rational systems to describe that as anything but a kind of failure of ethics, a kind of unfortunate nepotism. And isn't that awful, but we're just broken like that. And I just, I, I want to reclaim loyalty as a kind of normative system. The issue then is how do you connect sort of filial piety, what's sometimes called now like tribalism to the larger utilitarian, rational, liberal tradition. And that's really tricky. So that's an area I'm interested in. Well, I mean, that, that's basically acknowledges that there are competing ends, right? That there are different goods that are in conflict, necessarily in conflict. Yes. So the virtue of loyalty or the virtue of filial piety is ultimately going to be in conflict with your utilitarian fairness or utilitarian impulse, right? Yes. And I guess there are traditions that recognize this contest of values. I've always been very influenced by Isaiah Berlin, but there's other traditions who seem to think that, no, it's all going to smooth out together in a kind of utopian harmony at some point. And that's, I guess, the view that seems to be dominant and that I'm kind of irritated by. And the argument that you're describing is the one that is at the center of the book Against Fairness. And I think this is a bit troubling for most people in at least the American context, right? Because we stand against things like nepotism and corruption and so forth. And you contrast this with the East Asian culture, where your first duty is to your family and to your, your kin and, and so forth. So I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about that, because I think most Americans would, on the one hand, be very upset if you engage in acts of 
nepotism. But on the other hand, I think there's a degree to which without explicitly acknowledging it, we would be upset if we were not given some kind of preference by our, our relatives. You know, Peter Singer is famous for having this very, very strict utilitarian viewpoint, which requires you to help the least fortunate, even if it means substantial sacrifice on your part. And actually, when I found out that he was spending a huge amount of money to keep his mother in <laughs> retirement home, I actually liked him a whole lot better. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, you know, I kind of like this guy now, right? <laughs> because he is, he is seemingly inconsistent and hypocritical in that way. I, right? I agree with you, actually. That humanizes him a bit to me as well. And he famously works with a guy named Zell Kravinsky, who made a fortune on real estate. And then I think there was a time when Singer and Zell Kravinsky were sort of touring around, sort of like a pro-utilitarian tour of some kind. And Kravinsky said, like, he'd given his kidney to a stranger who needed it. And he said, I'm willing to give my other kidney if it's going to be for somebody that maximizes the greatest good for the greatest number. And he was saying, you all, he was sort of scolding the rest of us. He's just saying, ethics demands that we all do this and don't privilege your family members. And I, and he even says at one point in some of these lectures, like my family didn't really like this, which just seems obvious. But then I discovered that he had already, before he had went on this great philanthropy tour, he had provisioned his kids significantly with income and an inheritance. And they were they were all going to like Ivy League schools and they were, were going to be fine. So it's one thing for people to preach to us about discounting our loyalty bonds and that we should be acting for the good of strangers. And then to find that they're hypocritically provisioning their own family first. I, again, I find this more human. It, it sort of humanizes them, but then shut up about why we all have to just help the strangers and not our own first. I think we live in a culture that's very uh, hostile to nepotism, doesn't know what to do with nepotism, as you said, and then turns around and each one of us enacts it, practices it, benefits from it. I feel like we need to be more realistic about that and come to terms with it. And I, I look at the Chinese example as a kind of radical alternative, because if you look at Chinese culture, which is based on Confucianism, that filial devotion is the most, you know, it's a concentric circle. So that's the middle circle. It's you and your nuclear family. And your dedication to them then scales out and up to the larger society with you know varying degrees of success. I asked my students, because I was teaching in Beijing a few years ago, and I, I asked my American students and my Chinese students the same question. It was a thought experiment. I said, if somebody comes to your door and says, hey, it's your friend, and they're like, hey, I might have hurt somebody, and it looks like the police are after me. Can you just shelter me in your basement for a little while? I asked the students, you know, how many of you would shelter your friend? American and Chinese students say, yeah, I would do that. I would hide them in my basement. Then I start playing with the thought experiment and I said, okay, they come to your door and they have blood all over them. You know, this is more dramatic and you can see police flashlights coming. And now the American students start backing out and saying, well, no, I don't, I don't think I would do that. And Chinese students hang in there. No, they, I hide them in the basement. And I keep like ratcheting it up to like more and more dramatic crimes. Chinese students never give up their friend for any reason. Like, it just come, like you discover they're a serial killer. <laughs> you know, it's in the culture that you always prefer your kith and kin 
over larger scale society values and norms, whereas Americans will quickly shift over to that other ethic after just a little bit of pressure. And I find that fascinating. But what are we giving up when we go down that road? Because, I mean, I think a lot of utilitarians would say, well, this is progress, right? In other words, the flattening of the slope, right, as we kind of go from those small circles to the broader circles, like that's a sign of human progress, right? And the fact that you would prosecute your father, right, <laughs> or um, if they committed a crime, right? that's seen as a virtue in sort of the American world. Are we giving something up? And, and when I say, are we giving something up? I mean, that obviously has some kind of normative implications. And you do talk a bit about kind of health versus truth. And presumably here also, you would think about the impact on human flourishing. Is there something that we give up when we dissolve those familial ties, dissolve those ties of friendship and begin to kind of treat everybody similarly? I do think we give up the most important stuff. That's my own view. And I think we're seeing it happen in society too. There's a lot of critique around social media and the fracturing and alienation of young people in particular, but everybody. And there seems to be a lot of evidence that people would have reported like a handful of, there's been a lot of social science work on this in the last, I would say, 30 or 40 years. People reported having a small number of devoted friends. And as the decades tick on to the present, the number of friends they have dwindles down to, first it was like four, and then we're talking about three, two, and some people are reporting they have no friends, young people in particular. But at the same time, they'll say they have thousands of <laughs> right. friends, right. Facebook friends, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I guess my own view is I'm skeptical that that's real friendship. And what I think is that they don't know what real friendship is because, and this goes back to our earlier point about the embodiment of the mind and about the things that and, our, and values, because the way I think you make friends is you actually engage in activities with them. You have to sort of share in, you know, think about sort of paradigms of friendship where kids go to camp together and they do these things that are fairly meaningless, but they do them together and this forges. Uh, now you scale that up to like a band of brothers in the military who have to do things that are very high stakes together. It's the kind of embodied activity together that produces all of the sort of endorphins, internal opioids, oxytocin, all of that stuff that bonds people together so that they'll make sacrifices for each other. And I think you don't get much of that gaming together on your console I've watched my son sort of grow up in this world where he plays online and his idea of a friendship there, I was worried about him when he was young because I thought, that's not, a friend. that's not a friend. He didn't know their names. He didn't know where they were from. He didn't know what they looked like. He hadn't really done anything with them. I'm happy to say that kids are still capable of getting friendships in school and in all kinds of clubs and pre and post COVID, there's all kinds of opportunities for kids to make real friendships. But I do think we're living more and more the utilitarian dream where people are in less tight bonds and more sort of neutral, attenuated bonds. And as a result of that, you're finding more, I believe you're finding more depression, you're finding more social problems. And I think I just one last point on this, and then I'll, I'll stop for a second. But I'm very influenced by Orwell, who was reading Gandhi's autobiography. And Gandhi said, you know, you should never have any really close friends because that's going to take away your time and prevent you from loving as many people as you can equally. 
which is in a more neutral way. Orwell read this and he did a review of his Gandhi's autobiography and Orwell thought that Gandhi had given up something about being human and that part of being human were bonds that were so strong that you were willing to to kill and die for them, which I know sounds dramatic, especially to our modern ear, but that's what he said makes you human. <laughs> so I'm on that side of the line. Well, I mean, politicians will often have these kind of embarrassing friends or, or siblings, right? right? I think you describe it in the book, a couple of examples of this, where when you're a public figure, if you kind of drag your brother along, that's great if your brother is Bobby Kennedy, but if, you're, if your brother is Billy Carter, you know, then you got to got to cut them loose at some point, right? I mean, it's certainly in our world, maybe not in, in other parts of the world, but certainly in the United States, if you have a, an embarrassing friend or, or brother, first of all, you can't appoint them to a significant position, but you may not even be able to associate with them in your duty as a public official. I mean, I understand it. I think it's a bit sad. I mean, it's tricky because I'm pro sort of meritocracy on the one hand. You know, Billy Carter or shouldn't get a job that he's not qualified for. On the other hand, if the work needs to get done and your brother can do it, why not your brother? And so nepotism flourishes in politics. It flourishes in Hollywood. My God, like just look at Hollywood. It's loaded with, and I believe it flourishes in, I mean, you probably know this figure and I don't, but some fairly high degree of American businesses are family run businesses. So nepotism is alive and well and thriving. It's just we don't want to look at it. We don't want to acknowledge it. We don't want to have a theory about it. So I agree with the idea that you can't have an incompetent person doing the job just because it's your brother. On the other hand, that's fairly rare. I think we intuitively understand that sometimes you have to sort of, okay, you're not going to get the job. And if it's going to cause a rift between us, it's going to cause a rift. I don't believe you have to be loyal in all cases, when it's, you know, it's basically going to destroy you and your family, it has to be done in a way that's, that is what the Greeks would have called by phronesis or practical wisdom. You don't have a rule. You don't, you can't look it up and go, well, yeah, he's achieved this many hedons. So the calculus suggests that he's got to go out of the job. It's really more like how a judge makes a, a sentencing decision. You know, you just do it according to practical wisdom. But when you were describing the emergence of this norm, right, against nepotism, one thing you left out, I thought, was the role of the law here. Because, look, if I own a restaurant, you use the example of someone who owns a bar, restaurant, and, you know, you bring in your brother's band to, to play, right? Well, yes, okay, so there are other musicians that don't get the job as a result. But, you know, you're also going to probably pay the price in having a smaller gate, right? But if you decide to sacrifice that gate in service of your brother, that's fine. But if you're managing somebody else's money, right? So in, in the Anglo-American world, we've had these legal structures for over a thousand years where I entrust you to manage my money. And if I entrust you to manage my money and you hire your brother, it comes out of my pocket, not out of your pocket. So that's why we have in place these conflict of, of interest, duty of loyalty and, and so forth, right? In the, in the law. And I think, you know, governmentally, our governments have been just built on those kind of legal principles where it's really all about agency, right? No, I think that's right. And I, my project is not to dismantle that or get rid of it. It has made the West great in many ways. And I appreciate it. I guess what I think is interesting is that we're taking 
just like we were saying earlier about the mind itself as having these layers and we're sort of focusing an AI on the computational mind, here I think we're looking at the legal framework, which as I say, I'm a fan of, and we're trying to basically overlay it across all of ethics and normativity in general. And that's where I think the mistake lies. So yes, I believe the law should be blindfolded. On the other hand, if you try to bring that into your personal relationships or like a non-government situation, or like you said, when you have investment situations, then I don't think it works as well. But what I did find interesting was the way you characterized it, as you said, look, if I were to hire my brother for this role, everyone would agree that that's a breach of some duty of fairness. But if I didn't hire my brother, most people would not see that as a breach of fraternal duty, which, which of course it is, it is in yeah. some sense, right? That's right. Um, so we're, we're basically failing to acknowledge the trade-off, but there's clearly a trade-off there between a, these competing norms. Yeah, there's a huge trade-off. And I think the, the story we've told ourselves, like sort of from Hegel on, is that we used to live in these small tribal affiliations, and then we had progress where we increasingly had larger and larger societies until we live in groups of strangers and the law has taken over all of those sort of normative challenges that we needed before. But I think this is sort of wrong. This is to spread the allegiance across a temporal sweep when in fact it's really a vertical line or sort of maybe even like nested Russian dolls where we still live in these small tribal groups in our neighborhoods, in our families, inside the larger ethic of strangers. That that wasn't a long time ago, and we're past it now, so we can live in larger societies. We still live in this kind of hierarchy of values. And some of them, like to observe one duty actually cancels out the other duty and vice versa. And that's the thing that I'm interested in. And it does seem like it's kind of, my own view is that these tribes should be and are based in biology, like we were saying before, we're we're mammals, so our affiliation with others actually has a kind of neurochemical substrate to it. We're bonded to people through oxytocin and endogenous opioids. That's how that's why we feel the strong connection with family members. It happens in the actually the maternal care of the baby. And so that's where tribes actually happen is through biology and through shared history. What I find happening now in the conversation sort of post-Trump is people are now starting to talk about tribes, which I think is good because we need to. But they're again talking about tribes. They're talking about like Twitter tribes, tribes of ideology and saying like, oh, you know, this is, isn't this terrible? We got to get rid of tribalism. Tribalism is so bad. It's so evil. It's terrible. But you can't get rid of the, the tribes I'm talking about, which are your biological roots. If you want to say, yes, ideology needs to, we should give up on our ideological tribes and loosen up some of our sort of political, uh, social commitments, I, I agree, that is a problem. But I'm afraid that now all the talk about tribes is that, it, again, it's just negative. It doesn't help you. It's just a, a hindrance to pure ethical harmony. And I think that's, again, we're making the same mistake we've always made. I mean, clearly tribalism has its costs, right? So if I'm going to give preferential access or, and one, one of the tribes that you, you didn't mention in, in the book was university tribes, right? A lot of us in the elites think, oh yeah, I'm, I don't do that. I don't do, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not tribal. But then at the universities, we, we recruit people and 
the key to our value proposition, like the thing that the reason why you want to come to Stanford, right? The reason why you want to come to a university is because you're going to get preferential access to the network, right? I mean, if, if someone from Berkeley calls me and says, Hey, can you take a look at my pitch deck? I mean, I'm, I'm going to do it. And if somebody from Columbia college calls me, I'm going to be like, no, I'm busy. Like, leave me alone. Right. And so we, we do this, we brag about it. We advertise it, but we don't see it as a form of nepotism. But in fact, that's really what it is. Right. And doesn't it necessarily come at the expense of the people who don't, you know, they're not a part of this network. I, I totally agree. And I think unlike a lot of people who would then scold you for your hypocrisy, I want us to just admit that we're doing this and then find a way to work it into our notion of the good. I, I don't claim to have this solved or figured out exactly, but it does no good to just live in double consciousness, you know, of hypocrisy all the time. And I think you're right. The university is in large part a nepotism system, as are all these other sort of connection systems that we have. It's sort of, you know, religion used to be a major form of what we would call, you know, an anthropology kind of creating fictive kin, where you had blood ties that were obvious. And most of the people you would be devoted to would be people in your day-to-day life. Then as society got larger and you ended up having rubbing shoulders with strangers, we had a, we needed a system to build kin of some kind like Christianity, for example. You know, if you see the original sort of schools of, you know, coming out of the Jesus of Nazareth cult at the time, it would have been seen as basically a kind of millennial form of Judaism. Then Paul comes along and goes, hey, you know what? You don't have to, you don't have to get circumcised to be a Christian. You get circumcised in the heart. That's what we mean. It's a symbolic circumcision. Boom. All of a sudden your tribe is way bigger and you, and he goes all around the Mediterranean gathering people in. And this is a way in which religions and Buddhism did the exact same thing, by the way, by critiquing the caste system, you can create brotherhood, brethren, sororities, sisterhoods through a mutual devotion to Jesus or the Buddha or whatever. And then it's actually practical because let's say you're a businessman and you've got to go from one town to another, you know, in around the Mediterranean and you need a place to sleep. Oh, they're, they're Christians. Okay. I can, you know, it really becomes part of the economic relationship uh, and how groups create the solidarity. We're still doing this today. And to sort of call all this nepotism and just rule it out as being corrupt, I think is just very, is just poor th- it it shows an anemic kind of ethical thinking. I remember hearing this talk by this guy who I don't know, I don't know how famous he is, but he was apparently shot on the evening of nine eleven. He worked at a gas station, and he was Pakistani. And so some guy it was in Texas, I think. Some guy came in and you know shot him, and and the guy got convicted. And he was shut up at the trial and said advocated for uh, mercy you know, and said, this guy should be forgiven for what he did because you can't really blame him. But the backstory was that this guy was Pakistani and he, um, you know, showed up in America and his cousin who owned a gas station was like, all right, you know, you can sleep on the floor while you study for your accounting degree and work at the gas station. And he said that, you know, there were these American employees who worked at the same gas station who didn't even have anybody to pick them up at the end of their shift. And, And these were like, you know, eighth, ninth, 10th, 11th generation Americans, and they had no kin. They had no, no network, no support systems, right? Whereas the Pakistanis, they, they show up and, you know, you find a random Pakistani, <laughs> they don't, maybe they're not even a cousin, but 
but there's that solidarity because of the ethnic ties. And, and I guess there's that, that strength associated with those kind of ethnic ties. But I mean, those ethnic ties can also be very harmful, right? I mean, can we, you know, if you think about the classification in today's world of people into these, you know, racial categories, for instance, I mean, should we be thinking more carefully about, look, we, we can't get rid of these fake kin, that there's going to be a need for them, but can we engineer them in ways that are kind of less harmful, less divisive? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I think there are good and bad tribes and better and worse tribes. And my view is not in any way a defense of, you know, racism or sexism or the kind of ethnic cleansing model that you find in the pernicious forms of tribalism. And so we've been talking up until this point about just relatively either benign or helpful tribes. And I think whenever I talk to immigrant groups or friends who are immigrants, they get this point right away that you were saying. And I grew up in this town, Waukegan, where there's a huge nepotistic system between Mexico and Waukegan, and everyone helps each other to get through life. But I think you're right. We need to, and thankfully, psychology suggests that there are ways to easily change people's tribal affiliations. And if we just had a kind of educational system and greater awareness about this, it might help us create more healthy, flourishing tribes versus the negative ones. So for example, some social science uh, research looked at affiliation that can be very trivial, like who's your favorite sports team? That stuff can get very tribal, as you know, like people can actually hurt each other over teams. But with the right kind of massaging, you can get people to switch allegiances. People, their allegiance can even be as sort of um, malleable as, I remember reading one study where they said, uh, you know, they have a big room full of people. And if they can find some people whose birthday was the same or on the same date, they'll feel a strange connection and solidarity and want to help each other out. So the human psychology is, you know, as ugly as it is, it can also be massaged. And I think it's the work of culture to massage it in the right direction, in a humanizing rather than a dehumanizing way. And we have a lot of research. I know we don't learn from history very well, but one of my other major interests is in cultures of monstrosity and demonization. And it turns out that, it's very easy to demonize a group that you don't like or that you're going to go to war with. Historically, it would be, we're going to have competition for resources, so I'm going to treat those as non-humans, and then we can feel justified in, in attacking them. But you can form healthier tribes. The question, though, that's really kind of disturbing is, are the best tribes the ones that have a common enemy? And in that case, the question is like, who's the common enemy? You hear this kind of stuff in sci-fi circles all the time where people will say, well, you know, we we'll stop killing each other when we have, you know, aliens to fight or to be collectively opposed to. So the us-them dynamic is real, but the them is something that's malleable and can change. So are you saying that the strength of the tie or the usefulness of the tie does not depend on having a common enemy or the, at least a violent tendencies towards the common enemy need not be correlated with the strength of the tie. I mean, if I think about sports, I mean, I'm from Philadelphia and uh, if somebody shows up with a Dallas Cowboys jacket to the stadium, you know, they would, they would not emerge on a <laughs> right. 
Okay. And that, that same thing was true, I think, for English soccer back in the day. And, you know, those things have, have mellowed out somewhat. And so there's less kind of intertribal violence. Does that mean necessarily that the ties are weaker in some way? Or, or can you, you know, can you keep the ties strong while at the same time have a healthy amount of benign respect for the competing tribes? I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, there are, I think- Is there it, some law of thermodynamics that, yeah. that you know, says that, you know, because I think you seem to be arguing that it's a win-win, right? You can have pro-social and pro-group sentiment without necessarily imposing any kind of harm on the out-group. No, I, I, if I came across, that's too optimistic for my view. I do think it's a zero-sum game. And I do think that the benefits- of, in some tribal situation is the detriment of another group. I do think there's a huge range, though, of stakes involved. So in the case of sports, unless you're like really you're drunk or you're kind of psychopathic, you're not going to kill somebody because you're, their, their team beat your team. The stakes are low and most people recognize that. The same is true in music. Like, are you a Beatles fan or a Rolling Stones fan? Well, there, there was a war in between El Salvador and, <laughs> um, and Honduras at one point <laughs> over a soccer match, I believe. Okay. So I would still consider that to be a kind of fringe example, but maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe you can ramp. Here, I guess here's what I would say is, in the scale of stakes, the question is, what's the resource competition? When you have real resource competition, like my family is actually not going to eat tonight because of what these guys did over here, that's a very high stakes resource problem. Whereas I think of a sports competition as nothing like that. And if it is like that, it's probably masking one of these high stakes situations. There's lots of cases where you think, for example, of the Hutus and the Tutsis in the 90s killing each other with machetes, and it looked like it was a fairly ideological process of us and them. And the Hutus had been sort of suppressed for a very long time, and the Tutsis had sort of been together with imperial power. And this was sort of revenge time in the 90s. And so anthropologists who've looked at that case more closely uh, say, well, part of this problem has a lot to do with the incredible overpopulation and very small resources of the people of Rwanda. And the argument they've made, which I find persuasive, is that nothing like this would have happened in Botswana, for example, which has huge areas of land and smaller population. So I do think a lot of this, these tribal tensions are masking an economic and survival problem that's under the surface. So if you can address that, I mean, here's a great example. Bonobos, I think you probably know, are very sort of famous for being like the hippie chimps. You know, they're always making love, not war. They're always having sex with each other. Whenever there's like a, any sort of conflict, they start engaging in sexual activity. Chimps, on the other hand, are extremely violent and they're very tribal and the tribal connections, it always ends in bloodshed. But if you look at chimps and bonobos, who are some of our closest relatives, you find that in the case of bonobos, they mostly eat fruit and it's plentiful. There isn't a huge competition for food, whereas chimps are in a very high conflict competition for food and resources, and they use meat as a kind of sexual currency. So that produces a very different kind of effect with regard to tribalism. So I guess I would say my view is you can't eliminate all uh, us, them 
tensions and the, you know it's a zero sum game but some of them are more dramatic than others and if we could address some of those underlying causes we would end up having healthier tribes in the long run now in the book against fairness you argue that fairness has become sort of a, a catch all moral value which really is about much more than than fairness right and i think it's kind of like fairness is has kind of replaced the notion of the good right so anything that we value in American society, we kind of attribute it to, to fairness, but that, you know, a lot of the things that people are advocating have nothing to do with fairness. They're really more about kind of charity and so forth. And the kind of misunderstanding fairness leads to all sorts of perverse outcomes. You, you describe how, I think when your son came home with a, with, with a ribbon, <laughs> right, a participation ribbon, and this kind of this kind of disturbed you. Could you talk a bit about like, how is this, how has fairness become the substitute for the good now? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a really a timely issue because we do use fairness in all these ways. And if you look at conservatives and liberals, they're actually talking about two different things with fairness. I think the conservative view views fairness as, as a kind of meritocracy. The person who actually won deserves the desserts of that victory. The person who worked harder gets the results. Whereas I think on the left, fairness has been increasingly thought of as a kind of equal outcomes where everyone gets the same. Instead of equal opportunity, it's equal outcomes. And so, yeah, my son came home with a, a ribbon and uh, he said he won the race. This is when he was like in third grade or something. I said, oh my God, I didn't even know you were, I, I didn't know you were fast. He didn't seem particularly fast to me. And he said, no, no, I, I, I didn't come in first place. We all won the race, you know, and he, he sort of held the, uh, the ribbon to me as a refutation of my skepticism. And, um, and I said, no, I, I just, you know, said, yeah, you didn't win the race. They gave you this for participating, but let me tell you something. And then I proceeded to be this sort of, um, sort of, I'm trying to prepare my son to be ready for the real world. So I don't want him to think like he's going to get a ribbon every time he tries something. I do think that many people talk about things like generosity and patience and th things like justice using the only language they know, which is fairness. So when you look at the curriculum, as I was doing when I was writing that book, because I was my son went to Chicago Public School, so I got to look at, okay, what's a public school education like for a kid nowadays? And it got increasingly tilted more and more away from meritocracy. In fact, he was not allowed to bring Valentines to one or two kids unless he brought Valentines for all the kids. So there would be no demonstration of allegiance or loyalty or favoritism because that's evil. And instead, everyone would have to get a... And I thought, well, this actually violates the meaning of a Valentine <laughs> because you're picking this person out as your favorite and making some demonstration of your allegiance to them. And But that's the culture we're living in. It's become increasingly tilted towards everyone should have the same. And if there's any difference between outcomes... The suggestion now is that it must be the result of some discrimination, either at the institutional or at the personal level. And that's fairly new. I don't think that's doing kids a service. I think that that's probably creating a generation of uh, very entitled people who feel very much like if they don't get what they want or if someone has more than them, then it's something they can use the state or an institution to punish. I admit that the impulse is human. Everybody feels this way. In fact, it's more than human. There's some great work by 
primatologist Franz Duval on how even monkeys have this kind of envy. If they see someone next to them in the in the next cage over getting some, you know, a grape instead of a piece of cucumber, they freak out and they throw, they have a little tantrum. So I'm not saying it isn't human or it isn't mammal, but we need uh, cultural educational forms to try to help train us to, you know, that's why I think there's kind of a backlash against all this which is there like their stoicism is sort of on the rise people are there's a sort of a new appreciation of marcus aurelius and seneca and epictetus saying you know what life is like that life isn't fair so you better develop some psychological technologies some t psychological tendencies that help you handle the unfairness that happens that's going to happen to all human beings and that's i think a, a good way to also prepare your kids well, you also point to religion as a tool for emotional regulation, right? And that you say that, you know, religion has evolved alongside our other capacities and is an important tool for helping us to engage the world. And so you really emphasize the value of religion, the utility of religion for psychological health. In the book, you know, Why We Need Religion, one question I was I came out of that book with was is religion as you define it sort of on the decline, right? Or have we kind of substituted our traditional religions with sort of a, a new type of religion to some degree? I mean, have the, the stories of the Bible been replaced by the stories of sitcoms and, you know, genre fiction and, you know, yeah, whatever. Right. Like, does it make sense to talk about the disappearance of religion or is there sort of a, 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 a constant level of, of religiosity, but it's just kind of disguised by the rhetoric of, of rationality. Yeah, I think it's the latter, that the religious impulse, I believe, is, the, is both the social impulse and also the need, the way in which culture created abilities to, to do effective emotional management. And I do think you can get that via other domains like the artistic like you said you know one of the one sort of popular thesis is that religion nietzsche's famous you know god is dead religion just doesn't have the same force it has in culture that it did pre-19th century and so many people have suggested that art has taken its place so people find inspiration in poetry and music and paintings and emotional management in storytelling and art and i agree with all of that I think the component that's that also has to be continued if we're going to be a post-religious age is the social bonding of social activity together, which religion did very well. And I'm sort of pro-religion. I wrote a book called Why We Need Religion. So I'm just following up on your own sort of suggestion. Well, like, what's interesting about that book is the way you start the way you started the book is you described a story that happened in, in the classroom. And I gather that that story happened fairly later in your career, but it seems like everything that you've been doing throughout your whole career pretty much led to that moment because it seemed implicit in everything that you were doing before. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. The, the, the story is that I was, I was at a, a college on the East coast and I was giving lectures, you know, sometimes you go and you spend like a couple of days and you, you do lectures and it's great because you meet other faculty, but also students come into the lunches and classes and you interact with them. And I had been making fun of the Creation Museum in Kentucky, I think, and then using this as a sort of broad sort of cudgel against religion because I was, I was a fair, fairly skeptical early in my career. And this kid came to me uh, afterwards and he related the story saying that his 
he himself was not particularly religious, but his brother, he and his brother and another sibling, so three siblings, were being raised by a single mother. And his brother had been horrifically murdered like five years before. And that th this had caused his mother, quite understandably, to go into a complete tailspin. And uh, she just couldn't get out of bed. The depression was just debilitating. She couldn't function anymore. And he said that it was religion that dr slowly drew her back to the world. And I began to see that it wasn't like, oh, it made her feel better and that was it. I be he, the way he described it, I began to see like it actually put her on her feet helped her get food. She had two other siblings to take care of. It's not like your job's over. Okay, I feel terrible. Kids, do your best. We're all like this. We're all enmeshed and in a kind of network of these deep family ties, which are also, honestly, they're, they're nervous system ties. Like when your child hurts, you hurt. They are really extended nervous systems. And I began to see that like even ideas that I had, had previously made fun of, I had been raised a Catholic and I was a lapsed Catholic, I began to see, oh, these ideas are highly therapeutic, whether or not they're true or false. And what does that mean? It's not trivial. Uh, I think it was Roger Scruton who said, the consolation that comes from imaginary things is not imaginary consolation. In other words, it doesn't matter whether it's true or false. The flourishing of the organism and the, the family unit could be really enhanced. And in this case, the, the mother thought, well, you know, churchgoers started to come and bring her food and bring her back to church. And so she got the social connection and the oxytocin, the internal opioids. She began to think about her son's body. He, was, he had been stabbed to death. And she began to think about her son's body as intact and that she would embrace it in the afterlife. These are deeply consoling forms of imagination. And this also led me down the road of thinking more about the imagination as not just how we ordinarily think of it as just like, oh, it's fantasy or fancy, you know, it's distracting. It's, you know, Walt Disney. No, the imagination, I think like Blake, like William Blake thought, or even Edmund Burke uh, with the notion of the moral imagination, it's a huge force for values, for how we conceive of the good, for how we live our life. And I think religion is just really one of the best time-tested cultural institutions that helps cultivate an imagination that tends towards the flourishing of the individuals and, as, and of the group. But that, doesn't that mean you have to kind of turn in your philosopher card at this point? Because, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, okay, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. And, and that's a good thing, right? Yeah, and therefore, that's right. You know, you saying. guys, you know, go out, go out and get religion. I mean, you're advocating the pursuit of the therapeutic, but as a philosopher, you're, you're not supposed to care, right? You're not supposed to care whether something's good for you or bad for you. You're supposed to care about whether it's it's true or false, right? And, you know, it's clear that there, there weren't, I love that story about when you went to the, the creationist museum and that how they rationalized all the different animals on the ark and right. so forth. And how did you resist the temptation to say, Look, th th this is not going to work, right? You, know, you can't have forty million species on this uh, on this heart. Yeah, I mean, it was it was tricky because I I had to retain a kind of composure. I talked to the the head of the Creation Museum, Ken Ham, and um, but I I really do believe in. I'm not sort of a even when I interviewed him, I was considered myself an atheist or agnostic. But I'm not sort of of the Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris variety where I just think, or Dawkins, where I just think you're just stupid. I don't think that's the case at all. I think many religious people are very smart, very devoted, and what I saw in him was also something really interesting, which was 
Yeah, he was using sort of science from the 1700s, basically, and a kind of, but he was using logic that you and I would recognize. He's just starting from radically different first principles than a secular society would start from. And what I noticed was it was getting him great successes in the domain of social social life. He's a hero in a community that, you know, New Yorkers, Californians, Chicagoans don't don't care about. But I can assure you in Kentucky, he's a big wheel. And he's, if you think about beliefs as an extension of the survival instinct, and that what you're trying to do with beliefs is not get them true, but get maximum grip on reality, which is what I think, because I'm a pragmatist, then this guy's doing a pretty bang up job in a different kind of context than, than you and I live in. Uh, so it's true. A lot of philosophers would make me want give up the philosophy card, but you know, there's a, the American tradition is William James, John Dewey. These people are the ones that I tend to agree with. They would have said, oh, your God's eye view of truth, get out of here with that. That's a pipe dream. What really truth is what works and what works has to be understood in down in the nitty gritty of things, what's happening in the individual, what's happening in the community. For many of us, and I think Stephen Jay Gould is someone who articulated this well, right? You know, you've got the domain of science, which is over here, which is, covers the, you know, indicative. And then you get this other realm, which is the imperative, which has nothing to do with science, you know, it comes from somewhere else. But you're arguing that religion necessarily will have elements of, of of both. And so for those who are trying to kind of maintain this Chinese wall between the positive and the normative, the is and the ought, that, that ultimately it's it's an exercise that will break down at some point. I think that's, that's ex exactly right. And I think we should recognize that like when I, you know, the imperative is, is something that if you think about language, it has an indicative, which is okay, that there's a dog. But then the imperative is like, there's a dog and I'm afraid of dogs and it's coming at me. Our language is actually both, as you were pointing out, it's both indicative and imperative. And for most animals, the world is imperative. They see the world not as a description of the world. Like your dog doesn't think I got a good, pretty good model of the downstairs or the outside. It sees the world in what psychologists call affordances. So, you know, it doesn't have a theory or a taxonomy of cups, but it does have a sense that this can be, you can drink out of this. And I think if you think about symbols in religion, if you go from just regular language to things like a religion, it, you see that there are very powerful images like Christ on the cross. That's not like just a guy nailed to a cross. It comes loaded with imperative meaning. So somebody sees this and they feel a whole bunch of emotions, fear, sadness, inspiration. And in religion too, this is what we're doing is we're telling stories. I was an altar boy. I heard the priest, at, I served at many funerals and the priest would tell these consoling stories that were very hard to believe, like at the indicative level. But that's the, the grieving family is at, at the imperative level and they need some kind of assuaging of that, those terrible emotions, they need to feel consolation in order to then be functional human beings. And I think religion does a really good job with this kind of stuff, not just with the images and the iconography, but the rituals, the ceremony, the big stuff too, like sacraments, like forgiveness. You'll find in most religions that forgiveness is a phenomenal reset button. 
for people who cannot get over like a sense of injustice or injury or, or if they have beef with somebody that they can't, they see no way to get over it. Forgiveness comes in and says, we can reset. We can reset the emotions. You don't have to be angry all the time. Forgiveness allows a kind of recalibration of the emotions and this is healthy. Yeah. I mean, what I find interesting about your argument is that I think for most of us, we have this view that the story of progress is sort of the emergence of the rational view, which is coming out of the darkness of religion. But I think your argument is that religion is actually at the heart of this development of the more sophisticated mental properties that we have. And, and as an example, I mean, you talk about kind of the, the role of, you know, mindfulness training, right? Or rumination and how this helps to helps us to manage our, our emotions, to manage the limbic system. And you say that religion does a better job of describing kind of our emotional life than science ever could. It's a rather pr provocative statement. It's kind of religion that has helped us to manage our impulses and manage our otherwise animalistic tendencies. If you look at, like you mentioned mindfulness and it makes me think about Buddhism. And if you look at Buddhism and Christianity, Judaism, you'll find that whatever their views about consciousness and Buddhism can get quite out there and quite bohemian, they generally have a kind of social conservatism. They believe that once you're married, you're, you should be loyal to that person and you really probably shouldn't be having sex before marriage. And we sort of laugh at this and go, isn't that charming, these old ways, you know, we're all past that. But really think about it. How well would a tribe have survived if the men and women in that tribe were literally acting on their libidinal impulse every time it descended upon them, which would be regularly, you would violate all of the well worked out allegiances that you had forged with. I mean, imagine you basically have a culture where you have to hunt with these five guys, but then you go and sleep with one of their wives. What's the allegiance going to be like after that? In other words, if you think about it just as a survival of a group sort of adaptation, then religion comes along and it helps people to sacrifice their immediate hedonistic drives for something that's higher. Is it true or false? I don't even care. Who cares? Did it help those people to actually live together as a group? I would say in most cases, yes, it does. If you look at mainstream religion, important caveats here, all of the fringe stuff I hate as much as everybody else does. If you think you got to kill somebody because that's what God wants you to do, yeah, I'm not supporting that. I'm talking about the large, you know, silent majority of religious people that are in the middle, which is of the bell curve. And even though there's ugly stuff that people like Hitchens and Dawkins have pointed out, and I agree with that stuff. Well, I mean, the ugly stuff is the stuff that shows up in, I think, in the media the most, right? Yes. I mean, whether it's fanatic Islamic terrorists or yep. sexually uh, harassing priests, you know, right. like the, it seems like that we... There's a selection bias in favor of the things that kind of make religion look stupid. Oh, absolutely. Like if you, if maybe not so much now, but 10 years ago, everybody knew about the Westboro Baptist Church. Oh my God, look at these kooks, you know, just nutty, insane. And it was like a, people were holding it up as a model of Christianity. And the Westboro Baptist Church was like 50 members, 50 members. And that was the model of Christianity. It's ridiculous. So people, enemies of religion will cherry pick the worst stuff, like you said, and the media cherry picks the worst stuff because if it bleeds, it leads. But the rest of us and history will show, I think, that for the most part, 
religion had a civilizing effect. However, it's also very good at ramping up aggression and pointing it at an enemy. So let's not be naive. I just think that the the reason why that happens and when that happens it's is not arbitrary. The reasons for that can be found, I believe, in most cases in the deeper areas of mind and and anthropology, not at the level of beliefs. Oh, they don't believe with us, so let's let they don't believe with us, so let's go kill them. It's actually masquerading a low a deeper resource struggle and competition. Yeah, one of my, one of my favorite stories in, in the book was you quote H. L. Mencken. He said to question a man's religion is to sort of question his belief that his wife is beautiful and that his children are, are smart. Yeah. And and I think you turn that the intention of that quote on its head somewhat, right? I think he was saying that these are all silly beliefs, but you, I think you're, you're saying is that these are actually very important beliefs, yes, right? right. Yeah. And that, that, you know, you want somebody to have those beliefs, however irrational they might be about their spouse and child. Yeah. And you want them to also have that same set of capacities with respect to their religion. Yeah, I think that's right. And and it gets at a kind of a, it's kind of an oblique way to appreciate the way in which favoritism doesn't really fit well with either the left or the right. Like both the left and the right sort of have a problem with it. The, you think your wife is beautiful because you love her, hopefully not the other way around, but it's sometimes it is the yeah, other well, way if around. If somebody were to say, if somebody were to say, you know, I love my wife in spite of her ugliness, right? You know, I don't ever confuse fact. And right. I don't ever confuse yeah. the, the, the positive and the normative, right. right? You know, like I'm, I'm super razor sharp. I'm objective. I'm scientific. Yeah, my <laughs> wife is ugly, but my kid is an idiot. But hey, I right. love him anyway. I love right? him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> not not sure. <laughs> someone says that, you think, all right, well, this person's not the, yeah. the best parent, right? The, yeah, this person is suspicious for all kinds of reasons. So we accept this, and it's sort of like this point we were having earlier, too, about the imagination. You see your, your spouse, your husband or your wife, or you see them through the imagination. And it's not mm -hmm. some bullshit layer that you put on top of the objective facts, which you already see. That's not how it works. The objective facts are actually... So I, what's the, there's a great phrase that um, a philosopher said about science itself. You don't see facts directly. You put nature on the rack and you torture nature and then you extract the facts. And mm -hmm. that's how I think we actually interact with our social world and our environment world. It's much more imperative. It's much more about loyalty and the imagination and our value systems. We're already in an affective community. Our family is our first affective or emotional community. So for you to then come with a kind of scientific, indicative, utilitarian calculus, I just think you can't get there from here. That's just not gonna work. Well, look, we've barely scratched the surface of your work, but I, I can't let you go before asking you. In, in the book, The Evolution of Imagination, you hold up this whole idea of improvisation as a sort of an ideal. I mean, not just for the, the creative life, but I think for kind of life in, in general. And I was wondering, I think it was in one of the other books, you, you used this quote from um, Deng Xiaoping, right, about kind of feeling the stones with your feet. And I think that was meant to describe kind of practical wisdom or phronesis, or there's no single algorithm that will help you to navigate life, right? But that you have these competing obligations that you have to somehow, you know, manage in a contextual way. Is is improvisation, like jazz improvisation, is that a 
is that, can we, should we think of that as a metaphor for navigating life in, in general? And should we sort of esteem people who are particularly good at engaging in this kind of improvisation? And should we therefore, I guess, think some something less of the people who are just playing from the printed sheet music and not <laughs> adding any kind of flexibility into their to their performance? I would part with you just at the end, you know, because there are things that I think our culture should prize the improviser more than it does. Absolutely. For the reasons mm -hmm. you were just suggesting, because it's how we actually survive in the world effectively. It, it creates innovation. And having lived in the West and in China for quite a bit, you begin to see the differences between a culture that prizes innovation and one that prizes a kind of rote memorization and testing. Um, yeah, I was, I was interviewing actually Ellen Winter recently, who is a psychologist of art, and she was comparing actually. She went to China and saw how they teach art, which is very much about kind of rote reproduction yeah. of the the work that's in front of them. And, and they even have a formula like, okay, if you're gonna do a bird, a bird is two circles, yep. right? And if you get help from your parents to do it, that's that's actually a good thing. Yeah. And then in, in the West, we're like, no, no, you have to, you know, you have to kind of use your imagination, right? To create this bird. No, it's true. And there's a, they even, they try, they realize that it's a problem because you'll, you'll see even in their business uh, writings and their, in the philosophy they do, let's say like, I remember reading, um, and I included it in the evolution of imagination. One guy was saying, uh, where's our Bill Gates? You know, where's our Steve Jobs? And they, so sometimes the public institutions will try to create an opportunity for imagination or improvisation to happen. But it's just like you said, when you actually look at what they're doing, they're memorizing Tang Dynasty poems and then the kid has to give the poem back. So it's completely, but having said all that, I just, my son and I just went, he goes to, um, University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, and we went to a concert there in which they performed a box, The Passion of St. Matthew, which is like three hours long. Staggeringly beautiful, absolutely stunning. There's no way you can do that by improvising. They executed something that was of such exquisite aesthetic, and even I would argue moral power, but they did it by reading the sheet music and performing it with emotion. So I don't think, you know, it's like improvisers are better than readers, but it is the case that we need both. And I think the mind is divided like this too. So there's a part of your mind called the default mode network, which is sort of like an improviser. And then, but then you need like an editor, like the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex has to say like, well, this is a stupid idea. This is stupid, stupid, stupid. Oh, this is a good one. Let's keep going with this mm -hmm. one. And so I think art and music is a combination of these parts of the mind and parts of culture. We, we need both of them. Right. Well, I think we barely scratched the surface. We began to touch on some of the things in the emotional mind, but I'll have to save that for another day. Stephen, thanks so much for joining me. really appreciate you spending the time and it's been a fascinating conversation. A great pleasure. Thank you, Greg. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.